From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Michael Shulman, author of the new book, Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. It's a contest, you know, it's like a sports game. It's gamified in a way that I think really appeals to people, and that's part of the fun of it. I mean, it's also, of course, what makes it kind of meaningless. Like, art is not meant to be ranked, but art is meant to be discussed, and movies are meant to be discussed. And I think Oscar season gives us all a platform to talk about movies and what we liked and what we thought was the best or what we didn't didn't like and didn't think should be nominated or what should have been nominated. And I think complaining about what the Academy gets wrong is part of that in a way. We'll hear about the history of the Oscars, what to expect this year, and why anyone cares who gets the gold. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. We're in the lead-up to this year's Academy Awards, otherwise known as the Oscars. Presented by the Academy of Motion Picture, Arts, and Sciences, the idea is recognizing excellence in cinematic achievement with little gold statuettes. 96 years into this tradition, it's not always clear why the Academy makes the choices it does, what excellence really means, and to whom. I don't know about you, but most of the time when I hear about the Oscars, it's that people are mad about something. They're mad about who got nominated, who didn't get nominated, or more commonly, who won. Upon this year's nomination reveal, Stephen King wrote that the Oscar nominations and movie-going taste have pretty much parted company. This complaint's been around for a while, that popular movies are often overlooked in favor of ones that meet some arbitrary criteria of important or art. But when the movie leading the nominations, and which is commonly thought of as the frontrunner, grossed nearly a billion dollars, Oppenheimer, with its 13 nominations, how much of a divide is there? Or take Barbie, for example, with its eight nominations, including Best Picture and Screenplay. Public outcry at the lack of nominations for Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie seem to have missed the fact that uh, Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie did get nominations. But what's the root of this reaction of being offended at perceived snubs of living vicariously through the nominees? I think of Seth Rogen telling Business Insider in 2022, I don't care who wins the automobile awards. No other industry expects everyone to care about what awards they shower upon themselves. Maybe people shouldn't care. And so it makes me think, why, why do we? Why do people care? Well, the people who do, what's that rooted in? What are the Oscars good for anyway? This is the focus of our show today, where I'm talking with Michael Shulman, author of the new book, Oscar Wars. A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears, which chronicles the near century of achievements, drama, politics, and popular culture. I thought we could start with some of your personal relationship with the Oscars, because the book is sort of telling the history. It's not telling the, the personal side so much. But do you remember the first time you watched the Oscars? Yes. It's absolutely crystal clear. I was 11. This was 1993. And uh, what I remember is it was the era of the Billy Crystal medleys where he would start the show with this incredible medley of all the best picture nominations. And that was the year of um, Unforgiven and the crying game. And I was way too young to have seen any of these movies. So I didn't get actually any of the in jokes, but I just thought it was so funny and so uh, entertaining. And I guess as a kid who loved movies, I, it hadn't occurred to me that there was this, place called Hollywood with all these real people who are in the movies who would get together and they would they all know each other and they're part of this this world so I think that immediately appealed to me 
had you seen any of the movies that were nominated or was it just the idea of the people who are in movies that was appealing? You know, that might have been the year that Beauty and the Beast was nominated for Best Picture. So I would have seen that. But I really didn't understand, you know, when he goes into the audience and sings to Clint Eastwood, you unforgiven, that's what you are. You killed everyone because you're the star. Like, did I know what he was talking about? No, but I just loved it. It was, you know, it, it had a little bit of borscht belt in it and... I think I just loved that as a kid who loved Broadway musicals and, you know, comedy. Uh, But yeah, I was kind of discovering that there were these adult movies as well. Did it become a tradition then to always watch the Oscars? I did. Yeah. And then later when I was, uh, I guess, in my 20s or so working at The New Yorker, I ran our office Oscar pool for a time. So I I was, I, I, yeah. I, I, I stayed up on the Oscars and then eventually that turned into me covering the Oscars for The New Yorker. And I also went through this period where I would um, – I was really into acceptance speeches. I was like an art form. And uh, my first book was about Meryl Streep. And I used to know all of her acceptance speeches by heart. It was my one party trick. You know, like you could say to me, uh, you know, Emmy, Angels in America, 2004. And I would know her speech by heart. I still kind of know bits and pieces like that's the year where she gets up and she says, there are some days I myself think I'm overrated, but not today. So, yeah, award shows became just a, a, a genre of, of of entertainment or whatever they are that I, I was obsessed with. What What's the best Meryl Streep acceptance speech? Well, I would definitely say it's her uh, Oscar speech for The Iron Lady. In 2012. Oh my God! Oh come on! Oh oh! All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. When she won Best I, Actress, and she said, um, "When they called my name, I had." Oh, when they called my name, it was like I could hear half, half of America, America going, going oh, "Oh, come on, why?" Oh, come on, why? Her. Her. Again. Again, you know. But whatever. But whatever. Such a great opening. And I actually use that, uh, you know, as the title of my – that gave my book its title. My, my book was called Her Again, Becoming Meryl Streep. So I got to go with that one. It's interesting because I'm also someone who's been watching the Oscars for a long time. Like when I was a kid, I got into it. Um, it's probably somewhat similar in terms of the appeal – but one thing that's changed for me is how invested I really am in what wins or what gets nominated or how unjust it seems. Like I kind of am more of a detached observer of them now. But as a kid, it's very easy to care so much about what makes the cut, what doesn't, and how that corresponds with your taste. So has that journey changed for you, what it means to you about what makes the cut, what doesn't, what wins? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, for instance, I was a teenager the year of Titanic. And of course, everyone in the world saw Titanic. And it seemed like such a grave injustice that Leonardo DiCaprio was not nominated for Best Picture, for Best Actor. And then he didn't even show up. And it was just this this drama. I mean, I think we saw that a, a little bit this year with Barbie because so many people saw Barbie. It was a phenomenon. So when Margot Robbie wasn't nominated for Best Actress and Greta Gerwig wasn't nominated for Best Director um, – so millions of people had a reference point and they were up in arms. You know, I don't think that many people 
saw Sandra Huller in Anatomy of a Fall and had the same kind of feeling about her getting a nomination, you know? But for me, now being a kind of Oscar insider junkie historian, you know, I look at those nominations, I think, oh, yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense. You know, the directing branch has historically not embraced, you know, big uh, comedies or blockbusters and, you know, da 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 And there was probably a lot of support for Annette Benning as a, you know, a, an industry veteran and, you know, all the kind of little subtleties that, that uh, sort of give you an, a, a, an insight into why things happen the way they do. Do you remember a time when you got really mad other than Leo being sort of a collective one? Was there one where you really felt like, wow, they really missed it this year? I, the thing is I never get too angry because I just – what I really love is the sort of the pomp and circumstance of it and beyond the horse race kind of what the Oscars – like the comedy of the Oscars. I love the speeches as I said. I love the you know the medleys, the – the in jokes, the you know, just the the ridiculous rigmarole of it. In the book, I try to capture the fact that yes, on one hand, the Oscars are meaningful often in in what they reveal about how popular culture and the industry evolves, but they're also ridiculous and absurd and fun and and you know over the top. And there's something. I hope that the book kind of captures both of those things. Yeah. No, I mean, I I think it absolutely does. And something that you mentioned um, just a little bit ago was you sort of thinking about what makes sense as a nominee, what makes sense as a winner, and how certain types of movies are just sort of coded as Academy-friendly sorts of movies and others aren't. And that, that seems to not always correspond with what's necessarily good or popular or things that people go back to like one thing I always think about is comedies and how I really love comedies I go back to comedies more than I do you know like I'm not rewatching the English patient as much as I'm rewatching wet hot American summer or something like that but it was never going to be a best picture winner but I, I think this it's sort of difficult to pin down this idea of best you know what is the best picture best performance how do we qualify that how would you say the academy defines the idea of best well, what's exciting to me are these years when something wins that's really out of the mold of what we think of as a best picture, like the year that Moonlight won or the year that Parasite won. Those were two movies that really defied the kind of conventional received wisdom about what a best picture is supposed to be, even what language it's supposed to be in. You know, Parasite was the first non-English language winner. Um, and I think those moments, you know, a lot of the time it's like, a, you know, a, a green book, you know, to, to a, a sort of more sentimental drama about some important issue or some historical figure. I mean, I think we sort of have that this year with Oppenheimer to some extent. But, you know, looking back through history, there are, are these moments throughout the Oscars where, you know, for instance, in 1970, Midnight Cowboy won. The winner is Midnight Cowboy. And it was the first and only Best Picture winner to be rated X. And it was about, you know, a gigolo on the streets of, you know, gritty Manhattan picking up clients of both sexes. And that was a huge jolt at the time. And it kind of signaled that the movies were changing and that the Academy was catching up to that change in a very abrupt way that kind of shocked a lot of people, even in the audience. So that's sort of what I looked for with the book are those moments of like a jolt, something that showed that the Academy was changing with the times or resisting change or 
there was some kind of underlying cultural tension. So you, you do sort of track how certain, you know, there, there are different philosophies that are sort of guiding what gets nominated, what wins at different times. What, what about like right now, when we talk about best picture, what does that mean to the current Academy? Well, the Academy has changed quite a lot in the last eight years or so. You know, after Oscars So White, they made a very uh, strong initiative to diversify the voting body. So they expanded, they invited a lot more people. And that wasn't just inviting, you know, more people of color and more women. It was also younger people and many more international people. So the Academy is no longer so confined to Hollywood as a physical location or even the American film industry. And I think you see that result in things like Parasite winning Best Picture or uh, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, this, the German movie from last year that got a lot of nominations um, in a lot of major categories, not just the the foreign film category. And it's true this year with Anatomy of a Fall and Zone of Interest. So I think the the Academy's definition of best picture is changing and expanding to be more global. That's one thing that's happening. Um, and I think that's a good change. Uh, I think it might sometimes mystify American audiences who are saying, wait, why didn't you give more nominations to Barbie? What is this zone of interest, you know, uh, Nazi movie in German? And um, But I think that's great because, you know, I think it helps people around the world discover those movies. I'm talking with Michael Shulman, author of the new book, Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold, sweat, and tears. What do you want to see take the gold at this year's Academy Awards? Let us know. Follow the entertainment on Facebook, Instagram, or Substack, and stay tuned for more of the conversation after this break. Welcome back to the entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. It may not come as a surprise, but I always watch the Oscars. I don't know if it's a great use of my time. Do you remember who won Best Picture last year? Should I care who wins this year? Should I be mad at who doesn't? What's the root of this phenomenon of caring about the Oscars? These are questions we're exploring today with Michael Shulman, author of the new book, Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold, sweat, and tears, a near-century-long look at cultural trends as exemplified by what gets the gold. When was the point that the public started to actually get invested in the Academy Awards and it wasn't just kind of an industry insider thing? Okay. Well, we have to go way back to answer that question because the the, the awards started in 1929 and the, for the first decade or so, they were more of a, a banquet at a, at a hotel ballroom, you know? Um, and so the public wasn't seeing it. Um, and then during the 30s, they started airing it on the radio. And then in the early 50s, it started getting aired on television. And that's really – it was, of course, in a theater by then, not a banquet hall. And that's when uh, the public really started to pay attention because they could see movie stars in glamorous movie star outfits, uh, not in character. And you know, uh, it was a, a ceremony that kind of defined what Hollywood was and, and, and was a, a major press event for – for the movie industry. So in certain ways, the ceremony has not changed that much since the fifties. It still has, you know, people coming out as presenters, opening an envelope. Um, at a certain point, I think in the thirties, 
they realized that uh, how to do the envelope as a, you know, it, originally they would just release the names of the winners and runners up to the press and it would be printed in the newspaper before the actual evening. And then they figured out, oh, we can actually build some suspense by having names in a secret sealed envelope and they are revealed. So along the way, you see these sort of bits of show business uh, get invented. Um, even things like calling it the Oscar, which started in the 30s, or much later on, the, the red carpet, which kind of expanded in the 90s with, you know, like Joan Rivers and Melissa Rivers doing their show on E! And it be- the, the red carpet became a show unto itself, almost as big and long as the actual ceremony. So um, so I think the public's interest in it has just grown and grown, and the Oscars have kind of grown with that. So would you characterize that interest? Is it is it the movies? Is it people being invested in what wins? Or is it sort of the celebrity culture, the vicarious living through the suspense of the celebrities in that evening? Definitely, it has a lot to do with seeing celebrities in this almost like in this game it's a contest you know it's like a sports game um it's people in a race uh to win and there's winners and losers and it's you know gamified in a way that i think really appeals to people and that's that's part of the the fun of it um i mean it's also of course what makes it kind of meaningless like there is as i think you've alluded to there is no objective best actress or best picture or best costume design it's all subjective I, i would say though that you know, art is not meant to be ranked like sports teams, but art is meant to be discussed and movies are meant to be discussed. And I think Oscar season gives us all a platform to talk about movies and what we liked and what we thought was the best or what we didn't didn't like and didn't think should be nominated or what should have been nominated. And I think complaining about what the Academy gets wrong is a kind of a, a part of that in a way. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I was I thought it was interesting that you talk about how Betty Davis is sort of the first snub of the Oscars, and it, it's kind of this weird idea to be upset about the snubs. And I was kind of surprised that that was baked in basically from so long ago, nearly the very beginning. Why, why do people care so much about the snubs? Oh, because we see people on screen and we get attached, and we think that we know better. That's a, a great example too. This was 1935, I think, and. Um, Betty Davis was in this movie of human bondage where she played a really nasty woman who then dies of consumption or something. You know, it's like a very vicious performance. You, you're too fine. You won't have none of me, but you'll sit here all night looking at your naked females. Mildred. You cared, you dirty swine. I never cared for you, not once. I was always making a fool of you. You bored me stiff. I hated you. It made me sick when I had to let you kiss me. I only did it because you begged me. You hounded me. You drove me crazy. It really kind of jolted people. You know what you are, you gimpy leg monster. You're a cripple, a cripple, a cripple. You know, it was a big breakout performance for her. And uh, people had a kind of visceral reaction to it. And then it wasn't nominated or she wasn't nominated for Best Actress. And there was so much uproar that the Academy worried that it would lose legitimacy for this award show that was very new. It was, you know, six years old. And so they actually changed their policy to allow write-in votes um, for all the categories. So suddenly any category, you know, someone could win even if they weren't nominated. Um, And Betty Davis didn't win. Um, It was the year it happened one night. So... Claudette Colbert won for that. But then the next year, 
uh, Betty Davis won for a movie called Dangerous, which she thought was terrible. And it was kind of a makeup prize. And she, in her memoir, The Lonely Life, she talks about how she thought Catherine Hepburn should have won that year. And yet she got it. And as she said, okay, so next year, you know, someone else, you know, Kate Hepburn will win the prize. It should go to someone else. And it's like, the, and the original lie breeds like a bunny is what she writes. And we see that too with the Oscars all the time that, you know, someone wins, you know, the right person wins for the wrong movie or someone wins a kind of career award for, you know, directing a movie that's not actually their best movie. And I think the screwiness of that is, you know, it's like, it, it it's sort of, it's this tangle of uh, sort of little misjudgments that accumulate and uh, I also think that's, the, you know, being outraged about that or being, you know, happy about it, that's also part of the the discussion, part of the fun. It, it certainly adds a dynamic that I think is interesting. Like I'm thinking about this year, it seems like it helps that Christopher Nolan has not been a previous winner and that some of his earlier movies didn't land nominations when people thought they might or really mainly – Paul Giamatti is someone who is great in the holdovers, but it almost feels like the Academy needs to make up for not giving him nominations for just being Paul Giamatti. Or for Sideways. No, that's a perfect example of what Betty Davis wrote about. He was not nominated for Sideways. And now he's nominated and could win. I mean, I love the holdovers personally. I think it would be a very deserved win. But there is this feeling, oh, he he should have gotten it, you know, 20 years ago, however long ago that was. And so there's this extra charge to it now, or, you know, someone like Annette Benning and Nyad, like she's never won. And, you know, I, you know, I've talked to Academy voters just this past week who were excited about Annette Benning, like, oh, she, you know, she's never gotten a, a, a win. Like she, she deserves it. Um, was that the best performance by an actress this year? I mean, I don't think so personally, but, you know, she's very good in it, but that is the kind of thing I'm talking about for sure. Um, and with Christopher Nolan, that's an interesting example, too, because in 2009, I think The Dark Knight was not nominated for Best Picture. And it was, you know, the Academy was really shaken by that. And they that's when they expanded Best Picture from five to ten nominations so that they could try to get in more Batman movies. Um, it didn't always work out that way. Usually it was like, you know, it sort of allowed room for, you know, three more little indie movies that very few people saw, which is again, great. Um, it means more people see them, but to me, it's kind of ironic that Christopher Nolan is now the sort of art director. Um, and Barbie is the kind of populist hit. Whereas, you know, in 2009, he was the, you know, he was the Batman guy who couldn't get a break. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting to see the relationship between um, people who are either populist or think of themselves as rebels and then what winning an award does for that. Like I think about your chapters on the blacklist and on New Hollywood and there's kind of this dichotomy in American and uh, Academy history where filmmakers want to be seen as outsiders, rebels and dangerous, but also they want to win Oscars. And it kind of feels like this paradoxical way of wanting institutional approval and not at the same time. Does, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, that makes me think of Frank Capra, who's a big Academy character in the 30s. He, according to him, the way he tells it in his uh, autobiography, he was 
he just wanted an Oscar from the start. You know, he was obsessed with winning because he's he was a and you know, he was an immigrant. He he came from Sicily, from this impoverished family that came from Sicily as a when he was a child, and he saw the Academy as the Brahmins. He called them like he they represented the establishment, and he wanted to be accepted as one of them. And so he, uh, in his telling, and I sort of read his, uh, I, t- I take his own self-narration with a grain of salt because um, he's a he's a great storyteller. I'll leave it at that. But, um, you know, he talks about just wanting an Oscar so bad and actually making certain movies that he could try to angle for an Oscar and it kept not working and not working. And then he finally won for It Happened One Night. And then he became the president of the Academy and a very transformative president. Um, he basically saved the Academy when it, almost died off in the late thirties. Um, and I think that, yeah, he absolutely, you know, the, the Academy and who, who the Academy chooses to award to me is always, re- it's like, it's redrawing the lines of who is the establishment in Hollywood. Um, and sometimes that can be really exciting when new people come in when, you know, for instance, it's the late sixties and suddenly you have this whole new class of new Hollywood up and coming, uh, directors and actors, people like, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson showing up and Francis Ford Coppola, et cetera. And, um, and suddenly the power dynamics in Hollywood start to shift and you can kind of see that happening through the Oscars. Capra being so methodical about trying to get an Oscar was really fun to read about. And it made me think that there, I wonder if people perceived current uh, potential nominees as being that methodical, I think that can work against them. I think about the Bradley Cooper backlash, right? People see him as so trying so hard to get an Oscar that, you know, I've seen people describe Maestro as sort of like the whole movie. Every scene is kind of an Oscar reel clip ready to go. And he's dressing himself up and doing all the things that sometimes work. Uh, I don't know. Do you think there are people who are as methodical and is it advantageous to hide that in today's uh, climate where we sort of are watching the races that closely? Yeah, it's interesting because there's obviously a whole cottage industry around campaigning for the Oscar. But if it looks too blatant, then if it looks too hungry, then people kind of recoil and they say, oh, like you want an Oscar too badly and we don't actually want to give it to you. And maybe this whole movie was made to get an Oscar. I mean, you know, I don't know if that's a a fair charge to make against Bradley Cooper, but, um, you know, that movie Maestro does have all of these hallmarks of, you know, things that typically do well with Academy voters. You know, it's a biopic of a, of a, of a genius, uh, historical figure. Um, there's prosthetics to change, to transform his appearance, uh, He's playing someone with, you know, who, who's uh, bisexual or gay. Like that, that, that is, uh, has traditionally been something that people <laughs> used to get Oscars. So like, and then of course he co-wrote, directed and stars in it. And so it just feels like this one man band, almost like this kind of vanity project on some level. I liked it. I didn't, I didn't think of it as a, a sort of empty Oscar bait, but. I do think it's it's one way or another, people got that impression and it started to work against him. Are there people who you find methodical about trying to get Oscars who are maybe doing it more subtly? Oh, yeah. I mean, most of it is is subtle. You know, the the Academy has all these rules about campaigning. So you can't actually solicit votes. Um, 
So there are certain people who just, you see them at a lot of parties and they're very charming and they are using their charisma. I mean, I just remember the year, um, for instance, that uh, Brad Pitt won Best Supporting Actor for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the Oscar goes to Brad Pitt. And at the whole season, that whole Oscar season, everyone was so just excited to see Brad Pitt everywhere. And he was charming and he was good looking, of course. And he was giving these great speeches at previous awards. And there was just this electricity around him and everyone was just like, oh, there's Brad Pitt again. So was he angling for an Oscar? Like, yeah, probably. But it didn't seem thirsty. You know, it felt like it felt like everyone was having a good time. So yes, there's certain, and then, you know, it's, it's almost random. Like I, 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 I sometimes can't tell like what, how the chemistry goes wrong. You know, for instance, you know, this year, as I mentioned, Annette Benning is also in a biopic of a, of a, of a real person. And she's doing this in, you know, someone who did this incredible feat of, of uh, swimming from Cuba to Florida. And in a way that's a metaphor for, Annette Benning being this 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 trooper, this you know veteran in the industry, and she's lost and lost and lost these Oscars, but she's going and going and going like the long distance swimmer, and yet the feeling about that is not oh you know Nyad is Oscar bait. It's people are just kind of happy for her, even if they don't particularly <laughs> like the movie. A, a, a person I think of who seems to know how to play the Academy. I don't know how much he cares is David Fincher. Um, you know, like he hasn't won, but you look at something like he can make this huge cultural landmark essentially with Fight Club. He can make movies like Zodiac that are really good. They don't really get any Oscar attention. They don't really land in that way. But when he makes a Mank or he makes a Benjamin Button or the social network, it's like he sort of knows the right buttons to push and then he gets a ton of nominations or his movies get a ton of nominations. And he seems like someone who might be smart enough to think that way, right? Like a Mank is kind of made perhaps with the expectation from Netflix that it's not going to be probably a huge hit, not a huge, uh, you know, there's not like Herman Mankiewicz fans all over clamoring for that movie, but if it gets prestige, then that sort of helps them. Well, I can promise you that Netflix thought that, you know, Netflix thinks that way. They have a whole awards department paid to think that way and make it happen. So yes, certainly. And Netflix has been spending a ton of money over the past, however many years trying to get, a best picture win and it hasn't worked. You know, I remember the, um, the campaign for Roma was like $25 million. Uh, and then it lost to, um, green book. I would never expect that a filmmaker would say, Oh, I just did this to win an Oscar. I guess, except if they're, uh, um, Frank Capra, you know, it's, but Fincher had a really strong narrative as well, because it was sort of, he was fulfilling his father's passion project. His father had written the movie and he, so, you know, they'll always frame it in these personal terms, but you don't get to a certain level in Hollywood if you're not looking out for some kind of career ambition as well. In a way, it's like a trap. Like you can't say, oh, I'm not doing this for an Oscar because it just makes you sound more like you want the Oscar. You know what I mean? Why, why does a movie like Zodiac not land with the Academy, but something like, uh, you know, Benjamin Button does? I mean, certain genres do better with the Academy, again, because of what we were talking about, that there's there there's this received wisdom of what makes a what a best picture winner is supposed to be. And, 
you know, like a historical drama or a biopic, or I always think that movies that do well are movies about underdogs. Um, for instance, like Coda and um, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And uh, I would put The Holdovers in that category this year. Um, you know, movies about people in Nomadland even, like people who were kind of fighting uphill, struggling. Um, and that kind of turns into a metaphor for the movie itself because it becomes like the little movie that could. And the movie becomes an underdog and everyone's suddenly pushing behind it because they want this little sweet movie to win. And then it does sometimes. Um, I also think warm movies often win, not war movies, warm W A R M. Um, I've noticed that often like a cold alienating movie, like a tar or a power of the dog often loses to a, a warmer movie that, you know, leaves you with a little tear in your eye. I think, I think a lot of Academy members actually do want to, you know, feel something and feel, you know, touched in the heart when they leave and you know, wiping away a tear when they leave the theater. And then, um, you know, I think that certain genres are just not quite, uh, you know, they're, 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 uh, it's difficult. It's more difficult, like a thriller or a comedy or, um, you know, a horror movie. Um, and I always hope that that changes. Cause I think it's more interesting when you have something like a get out in the conversation, um, or, a you know, Barbie, like this, this, you know, surreal, uh, you know, studio comedy based on a doll. Like that to me is, is means that people are being more open-minded about what kind of movies should be Oscar winners or can be Oscar winners. I'm talking with Michael Shulman, author of the new book, Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold sweat and tears. After the break, we'll get into the more recent trends in Academy history and where that does or doesn't converge with what we think of as modern classics. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. This year's Academy Awards are on Sunday, March 10th, and it can sometimes feel like a lot of work to get ready to watch them. Some movies are hard to track down. Some can feel like homework. A lot of people might just rather watch Barbie again instead. To get a sense of both this year's nominees and to put that in a context of the history of the Oscars, I'm talking with Michael Shulman, author of the new book, Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. When you talk about uh, the 1989 ceremony in the book, you mentioned that there had been a decline in ratings since 1984. What was going on in the mid or early 80s that sort of shifted audiences' relationship with watching the ceremony? I'm not sure. I think maybe they were just getting kind of long and dull, you know? <laughs> Three hours is just too much for people? Yeah. Um, I mean, in the movies themselves that one in the 80s are often very long and dull. I won't name names. But um, another thing that was happening, I think, was the rise of the MTV. And, you know, in that 80s chapter, I talked a lot about the opening numbers, these sort of big vaudevillian production numbers that seemed – a little bit outdated. They seemed like they were from the era of variety television and, you know, song and dance and spectacle. And that wasn't really the mood. That wasn't, that wasn't the, uh, you know, a, a, it was a little stale. Um, 
So I think that might have been part of it as well. And that informed the Academy trying to punch up the show um, and reinvent the show. And in 1989, it went horribly wrong. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's one of the great legends of Hollywood. She's back with us tonight, Miss Snow White. Good evening. Oh, good evening, Mr. Archer. It is so exciting to be here tonight. Yeah, for, for anyone who maybe doesn't know that story, what, what was the big problem in 1989? Okay, so if you haven't seen this, uh, the show that year begins with an 11-minute production number that involves... Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary with a woman dressed as Snow White in a replica of the Coconut Grove with dancing cocktail tables. Used to work a lot for Walt Disney Starring in cartoons every night and day But she said goodbye to grumpy and sleepy Left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay Weird lights keep on burning it's like a gay fever dream it's just insane and it's so it's like over the top and campy and i love it of course the man behind it was uh, a producer named alan carr who um he had produced grease um and he was a kind of larger than life character he was a very flamboyantly gay man um and he wore these sort of designer caftans that he had but you know he had like 100 caftans in his closet and threw these bacchanals at his home in uh the hollywood hills and he dreamt his whole life uh of producing the oscars when he finally got the chance in 1989 because the academy the academy wanted some juice they wanted to like reinvent things the car kept saying in the to the press whenever he could like oh it's going to be bigger it's going to be glitzier more glamorous da, 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 da. we're going to get this person and that person and so everyone knew that these were the alan carr oscars you know usually people don't know who produces the oscars it's not usually a very public role and yet alan carr put his name everywhere and so when this opening number happened and it was so ridiculous and got panned everybody kind of knew where to point the finger because they knew oh, this is this was alan carr's show um, and it kind of snowballed. So then Disney threatened to sue the Academy for, you know, copyright infringement with Snow White. And then a bunch of Academy elders like um, Gregory Peck and Blake Edwards and Julie Andrews, they all wrote this open letter saying that the ceremony had, you know, brought shame upon the Academy. And poor Alan Carr was basically the end of his career. He was just shunned from that moment on. And... um I don't know. I find it to be kind of a, a tragedy within a comedy because the details are all like so ridiculous with 80s excess. And yet at the center of it is this man who, you know, had uh, the fatal the fatal flaw of hubris. And uh, he, it was, he's like an Icarus character who flew too close to the Oscar sun and then plunged into the sea. <laughs> it makes me think when, when you talk about the MTV impact, the way sort of cultural ideas are shifting and I think that there's maybe something with younger and older voters, maybe a dissonance at times. But I think about the the way that the 90s auteur movement or indie wood, as Jeff Wood calls it, uh, there's kind of this interesting idea that there's all these big names uh, who come out of that, who are thought of as kind of the the big directors now, like your, your uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's, Wes Anderson's, Darren Aronofsky, Richard Linklater, you know, these guys who are still thought of as kind of these big wigs, but they don't tend to win Academy Awards. They sometimes get nominated. 
Um, there's a few who have won for writing, uh, but not directing, like Tarantino or the Coen Brothers, Sofia Coppola. And I wonder sometimes with the the MTV MTV age, the sort of cool, ironic thing that was going on in the 90s that leads to a lot of, I think, some of the trends today. But it almost feels like some of the canon formation, the movies that are becoming modern classics are adjacent, but not necessarily overlapping with what wins Oscars. Do you think that's fair? It's hard to talk about the 90s and the Oscars without talking about, uh, you know, Voldemort, by whom I mean uh, Harvey Weinstein, because what he was doing through Miramax throughout the 90s was aggressively pushing um, indie, grittier films like Pulp Fiction and into the mainstream. You know, he wanted to, in in his words, break out of the art house ghetto. And so these movies like, you know, Clerks and... Uh, you know, Pulp Fiction and, um, you know, uh, The Crying Game, for instance, became big hits and they became big Oscar contenders. Um, but that didn't mean they always won. I mean, um, Pulp Fiction lost to uh, Forrest Gump, you know, which is sort of the <laughs> kind of squarest, you know, most Hollywood studio kind of movie, sentimental movie. Um, so it was an uphill battle to to get these movies oscar attention and the the fact that they even did was significant of course we all know now that weinstein was doing um much much worse stuff at the same time as he was you know beating people over the head with um oscar ads um and then miramax kind of changed throughout the 90s when they when they finally started winning best pictures it was uh with movies like uh the english patient and shakespeare in love which in a way are more sort of traditional uh prestige kind of movies they the, miramax stopped making the the, the edgy director driven movies because in a way they were uh you know they had sort of been swallowed by their own success and they they wanted hits and they wanted oscar winners and they you know they got them but um so that was a real driving force in that indie 90s movement but then you would see you know p- characters come up many of them through miramax like um like billy bob thornton with sling blade you know or or uh, the Coen Brothers with Fargo. I mean, I discovered as a teenager. I remember discovering a lot of those movies through the Oscars because I would see Fargo and you know nominated for things and um, you know and Sling Blade and uh, Goodwill Hunting. And I do think that brought a certain kind of youth and edge to the Oscars. The nominees are Monsters Incorporated, Pete Doctor, and John Lasseter. Jimmy Neutron, Roy Genius, Steve Odekirk, and John A. Davis. Shrek, Aaron Warner. Gosh, up until now I thought Monsters Incorporated was a documentary on the Weinsteins. But, oh. How much did the Oscars become synonymous with Weinstein at that point? Do you think he hurt their legitimacy? Yes. Uh, You know, what he did was, um, again, this is not what he's notorious for now, but it was then. Um, he, uh, he kind of honed what's now called the Weinstein playbook, which is just a certain set of things he would do to call attention to a movie and campaign, you know, whether it was, um, placing just a ton of ads in in the trades or, uh, you know, blanketing the radio waves and the TV stations with, uh, with ads, 
Um, he'd have his staff call Academy members, like find them in little pockets and sort of random places. Like if there were three Academy members who lived in Santa Fe, he'd call them all and set up a screening in a movie theater and make sure they saw them. So he was playing the ground game. And then he was bringing the talent on this, these month long sort of circuits of um, shaking hands and appearing at cocktail uh, parties and, you know, panels and things and screenings and, you know, getting press for them. So, you know, like Gwyneth Paltrow, when she was nominated for Shakespeare in Love was just everywhere. Um, the reason that it exploded as it did was that it, it climaxed in 1999 with Shakespeare in Love versus Saving Private Ryan, which was, of course, Spielberg's big war epic uh, with his co- own company, DreamWorks. That movie came out in the summer of 1998 and was just immediately assumed to be the front runner for Best Picture. Cut to, you know, the end of 1998 in December, Weinstein came out with Shakespeare in Love, which was a big contrast. It was, you know, light and romantic and funny and it was about actors and art and the Elizabethan theater. And it kind of gave people something new to pay attention to. And then he really cranked up the uh, the campaigning like really, really high to the point where um, the Spielberg camp got really worried. And then they heard that he was bad mouthing Saving Private Ryan. And they freaked out about that. And they started outspending Shakespeare in Love. And they re-released Saving Private Ryan in theaters. And it, just, it became this war, this real all-out war. And I've talked to many people in both from both of those companies. They hated each other. Um, and the end result was that, you know, Shakespeare in Love did win. It was really shocking to a lot of people in Hollywood. Some of them felt like, okay, Weinstein is coming on our turf and like, you know, essentially cheating his way or buying his way to an Oscar. I don't think that's a totally fair assessment. I think people really did like Shakespeare in Love and there's lots of like about it and especially actors, you know, it's a movie about acting. I think the actors branch really liked it, but then all of, when it won, everyone else in Hollywood decided, okay, we're going to, we're not going to let this happen again. We're going to take that Weinstein playbook and double it. And now we are going to hire a bunch of strategists and place a ton of ads and have our, you know, movie stars on this endless circuit. And so the next year DreamWorks did that for, uh, American Beauty, and they won. And then they did it again the next year with Gladiator, and they won. And it became a kind of arms race that resulted in this bloated uh, campaign ecosystem. Do you, do you think that changed the types of movies that get funded now? Um, you know, it's funny that a lot of the people who are veterans of Miramax in the 90s are now major strategists, um, you know, at places like Netflix where they have their own sort of independent firms that do Oscar strategy. I don't know if that changes what kind of movies get made. I I do think it, um, I mean, in a way, yes. Like I think even a movie like American Beauty is more of a Miramax movie, even though it was made by DreamWorks. It had that kind of, that kind of edginess and cynicism and, uh, um, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it, it feels more like something that would have followed a, you know, a, a clerks or a, um, you know, a reservoir dogs almost. And while Miramax was making like the cider house rules, they had gone very, uh, you know, very, very, very traditional. Um, so in a way the, the, the Miramax um, kind of aesthetic started spreading, but so did, you know, the campaign tactics that Weinstein was notorious for. 
Weinstein treating it almost purely in this political way, it hurts the artifice that it's really about quality and about recognizing things as opposed to just who was the best strategist, right? Absolutely. You know, and that was something that people said at the time, you know, the day after Shakespeare in Love won, the, you know, people were people in the industry were complaining in the New York Times. Well, now it's, it's all about the politics now and it's all about the money you spend and the attention isn't it supposed to be about the art form. And I think as a result of that, the Academy started uh, policing how campaigns are done, you know, it's kind of like um, campaign finance reform or something, you know, the, bef- during in the heat of that race in 99, one of the Academy administrators told the New York Times, uh, New York Magazine, you know, we don't want to be big brother. Well, soon enough, they realized they kind of had to be big brother and they had to rein in how, you know, the, the bloatedness of the campaigns. And, you know, it's funny, like they, they had to basically keep up as, as, you know, Miramax was creating more ways to campaign, the Academy would have to like quickly make up a rule to <laughs> make them stop doing that. You know, this happened last year in a different way with um, Andrea Riseborough's surprise nomination for To Leslie and Best Actress, which was just a, this out of nowhere campaign that was all on social media um, where, you know, celebrities were posting about it during Oscar nomination voting week on Instagram and Twitter, uh, you know, don't forget about Andrew Libraryisborough and to Leslie. And it, it, it seemed like this bizarre thing that, that was so random and yet it worked and she got nominated, which on one level is, you know, good for her. She was, you know, in this little indie movie that very few people actually saw. And, uh, and yet the Academy had a meeting after those Oscars last year to, to kind of nail down some new rules about how to use social media in campaigning. So they're, they're continually trying to sort of stay a step ahead of the campaigning and make sure that they do protect their legitimacy. Yeah. If we can't have campaign finance reform in real life, at least we can have it in the Academy, I guess. (laughs) But also I should mention that cynicism goes way back. I mean, even back to the thirties and forties, the New York times, for instance, once wrote about the, the sort of clannishness of the Oscars and the, you know, suspicions of, the, you know, this was the era of the studio system and people would suspect block b- voting. Like, you know, if there was a Warner Brothers movie, then, you know, Jack Warner would have all of the employees at the studio all write in, for, you know, for the for, for whatever their movies were. Um, so I don't think the Academy has ever been quite free of the sort of raised eyebrow. Like, is this, you know, is this all on the level? And, you know, they they have to just do what they can to stay ahead of it. I know you said you do, uh, or at least you have done Oscar pools among people you work with. I don't know if you divulge your personal thoughts on the the current ones. Do you, do you have a pick for best picture or anything that you're willing to divulge? I, you know, I feel best picture is not the the spiciest race this year. I feel like there, it's sort of coalescing around Oppenheimer, though I could be wrong. You never know. It's, it's We still have a month left. Um, I feel like people all think that Oppenheimer is going to win. The acting races are a little uh, – the directing race I think is also um, probably going to be, uh, you know, uh, Nolan. Um, the two lead acting races are a little trickier because best actor, I think it could be Killian Murphy in Oppenheimer. It, it could be Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers. It's a little hard to tell where it's headed. And then best actress – um, you know, people have been saying Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon, 
but maybe it's Emma Stone in Poor Things. I have this feeling that maybe Sandra Huller in Anatomy of a Fall has more support than we're realizing. So that feels very much up in the air. And then the ones I really can't figure out of the screenplay uh, categories, those are both, inc- they're both incredibly stacked, both adapt- adapted and, and original. So I'm, I, I'm kind of stumped by who's going to win those. I'm not the first to note this, but I, the the idea that Noah Baumbach might win his first Academy Award for Barbie is a fun possibility. I know it is, isn't it? <laughs> and he may well. Like I think I think Barbie has a really good chance because, I mean, I was talking to a, an Academy voter today about this, and he was like, "Well, you know, I guess people might vote for that since it would be a way to give an Oscar to Greta Gerwig because they can't give her, you know, she's not nominated in Best Director." So I think I think that that quote-unquote snub might help her with this screenplay award but it's also controversially in the adapted category because it's adapted the academy ruled that barbie was adapted from you know the the doll barbie <laughs> like it's adapted from you know and and all the whatever the storytelling that that surrounds the character of barbie so it's it's kind of a in a weird fit in that category but i do think it has a good chance well, the Oscars are interesting. And again, you know, there's all kinds of debates we can get into about best, about quality, objectivity, whatever. But just the fun of it all, the fun of the drama, the arc of it, it's very interesting. And I really liked the fact that your book was able to highlight some of those. And I think it'd be a really interesting read for anyone who wants to learn more details than we can get into in an hour on the radio. But thank you so much for letting me pick your brain about this. This has been really fun to talk to you and to read your book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Michael Shulman is the author of Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold, sweat, and tears. You can find it wherever you get books. What will take the gold? Will Oppenheimer coast to victory? Will anyone open the wrong envelope? Will anyone get slapped? Will you be watching? Join the conversation. Keep it going. Follow the entertainment on Facebook, Instagram, or Substack, and let us know what you think. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and we'd love it if you gave us a review. The Entertainment is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. It is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Today's show featured music and clips from various Oscar ceremonies, along with a clip from Hollywood Hotel. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.